I'm Chris Lehman, editor of The Baffler. This is Rick Perlstein, our distinguished contributing editor, author of many fine books, including uh, most recently uh, The Invisible Bridge, and author of a very fine piece in The New Baffler about the wayward politics of smartness across the ideological spectrum, but with some important cautionary points for we on uh, what still can be called the American left. So, Rick, I, I just figured for those readers not yet fortunate enough or uh, smart enough, let's say, uh, to read your piece, um, you could give us the elevator pitch and also explain how you decided to take this, this topic on in our distinguished pages. <laughs> Should we start with the biography? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's how you draw listeners in, right? Through a, yeah. through a wrenching emotional personal narrative, and you are the man yeah. for the job. Yeah, the story begins around, uh, say, 1973 and 1974, maybe, uh, in Washington. The uh, Watergate uh, scandal is <laughs> racking uh, the political firmament. It's and in a uh, Jewish suburb of Milwaukee known as Bayside, or Bagelside, as we sometimes <laughs> called it, I uh, am born. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 12 months later, uh, my sister is born. Basically, my sister uh, almost, you know, kind of came out of the womb a reading. She was a intellectual prodigy. Uh, according to family legends, she learned to read when she was two. Yeah, this is Linda, who I worked with at the Washington Post, right? Yes, a very uh, distinguished uh, yeah, writer in her own right. Yeah, very smart and uh, very decent, which will mm -hmm. uh, figure in the story. Uh, so she learned to read, and our parents, after her first year in kindergarten, wanted to move her immediately uh, into first grade. Ours was a district that had two years of kindergarten, and the school district didn't want that to happen, so my parents sued. And it became kind of a minor little news story in Milwaukee, and uh, I relate in the piece that one of my first memories is the TV news in Milwaukee filming a story on it. My sister and I were directed to play with dolls. Uh, and I remember sitting there on the tennis court at the park near our house as the TV cameras whirled. So this was a very big deal. And as my sister kind of emerges as this intellectual prodigy, uh, myself, who, you know, since that point of, has read, you know, like millions and millions of books, I didn't learn to read until I was seven. Yeah. And so I entered first grade a year late. I was actually held back. So even though my sister and I were supposed to be two grades apart, we ended up in the same grade. And then curiously enough, by the second grade, I emerged once I kind of figured out that I, in fact, could read as the quote unquote smartest kid in the class. Right. And I tell the story of my anointment as such. And, it's a um, stirring public ceremony. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just all very, very curious um, because, because you were the same kid, right? You were, you were just mastering certain conventions of self-presentation in the world of, let us say, intellectual upward striving. Right. And uh, since I was kind of stamped with this identity as one of the smart kids, right. and I was always placed in all the, you know, advanced classes, the, 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 the honors classes, uh, even though uh, I wasn't very honorable. So and, you cheated, uh, is what you're saying. <laughs> by the, by, by uh, the fifth grade, I got a, finally got a D in math. Wow. Uh, 
you know, I finally uh, was found out, but it's still, I found myself flushed into these high advanced classes in math, you know, all the way until high school where, you know, the summer before high school, I was in the honors math enrichment program. And uh, I don't know what I must have like twiddled my thumbs the whole time until finally they did the placement test in high school. And it turned out that, you know, I wasn't smart at math at all. And, uh, you know, the upshot of the story is that intelligence is a very hard thing to fathom. And uh, one of the ways we get around that is through these, this uh, stamping of uh, identities. And the point of this kind of allegory is a political one. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a fable about the meritocracy, right? Uh, once you clear a, a few preliminary hurdles, you're sort of a, a made smart guy. So, you know, the politics of the identity of smartness has been something that always was kind of in the back of my mind, kind of in an unconscious way. And uh, once I, you know, fast forwarded to my career as a, you know, a brilliant uh, journalist and pundit and historian and such, that was something I always, you know, had kind of been mulling, especially as I, uh, you know, sort of began my work studying the history of conservatism and realized that so much of how our political culture kind of sorted itself out through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s was around uh, this idea of cognitive attainment and uh, eventually intelligence, smartness, uh, the word smart, um, becoming a synonym for moral worth. And that's what I basically um, interrogate in this piece. Uh, Carter's a pretty interesting example in that one of the hallmarks of people who uh, fancy themselves extremely intelligent is a refusal to uh, delegate. They don't know the limits of their own power. So, you know, you have this guy Carter, famous for sitting down with the entire United States tax code uh, (laughs) when he decided he wanted to reform taxes. Or, you know, sitting down with the entire uh, collected reports of the Army Corps of Engineers when he decided that uh, he wanted to figure out which water projects were, um, you know, not worthy of federal support. And... um, you know, in the case of the water projects, he, in the first few months of his presidency, uh, put out a hit list of water pro- projects that he wanted to cancel that uh, caused, you know, such an uproar amid, you know, kind of congressmen who were counted on these water projects for, you know, patronage that he almost immediately sabotaged his good standing with Congress before his presidency had even begun. So that was pretty dumb. Right. Right. And Nixon uh, was smart enough to uh, have. Howard Hunt and Haldeman and company mastermind the Watergate break-ins and, you know, did a pretty good job of covering his tracks right up until the end. So the difference is delegation. (laughs) Right. Well, and then also uh, this extraordinary faith, you know, place in the routines of technocracy was also what got us in the mess in Vietnam in many ways. I mean, uh, David Halberstam talked about the best and the brightest, right? And, uh, recently passed away, uh, the great economist Thomas Schelling, who kind of invented or advanced game theory, his theories were used to make it impossible for America to lose in Vietnam. They came up with this uh, doctrine called graduated pressure, which was all based on game theory that would you know, bring the communists to their knees and to the negotiating table. And uh, uh, we all know how well that worked out. Yes, yes. Which actually, that raises one of the questions I, I wanted to put to you, which why is it that liberals keep falling for the smart narrative over and over again? Because I was thinking in our presidential politics, you know, 
where where does this idea first sort of significantly gain traction? And I, I guess it would be FDR's brains trust, right? One of the uh, one of the things I do in the piece is I hearken back to this very marvelous quote from uh, the great populist Democrat Williams Jennings Bryan. Uh, who said, I fear the plutocracy of wealth, I respect the aristocracy of learning, but I thank God for the democracy of the heart that makes it possible for every human being to do something to make life worth living while he lives and the world better for his, his existence in it. And you know what I take away from that quote is this sense that there are all kinds of ways to make a contribution to society. And, you know, one of them is uh, to, you know, basically tend your garden, uh, develop your family, uh, uh, work with your hands or whatever. But that was a time when uh, about 6% of the American public graduated from high school. Uh, Now about 80% of the public graduates from high school. And one of the things that happened in between was this sort of economy that reached its heyday in the 1950s and 60s in which you know, people who graduated from high school or even didn't graduate from high school could create quite stable and honorable lives by, you know, kind of going to work in the the local factory and working hard, playing by the rules and support a family. Joining a union. (laughs) Joining a union and, you know, end up maybe like with a vacation cottage on the shores of Lake Michigan where, you know, like they might have grown up, you know, with an outhouse in the backyard. But that's the kind of economy that uh, we all know, you know, began withering away, you know, uh, with the 1970s. And uh, as it does, more and more the Democrats begin placing their faith in education and cognitive attainment as the right, route sort to, of panacea. It's, as a panacea. Right. It's always struck me, um, you know, throughout my whole political adulthood, basically, that the the democratic model of Social democracy is basically a, a kind of high-tech algorithm, you know, that uh, if we simply, you know, find out the perfect formula for properly redistributing educational resources to allow everyone to achieve their maximum potential in, in the marketplace, every other social problem will be solved. Whereas, you know... The world you're talking about and the, the world I think that any, you know, sort of person of goodwill on the left wants is one in which, you know, it's the other way around. You begin by equitably distributing resources and people then, you know, have the leisure, the freedom, the self-determination to realize their destinies in a way works for them. Right. I came across a really nice reductio ad absurdium and this uh, ideology when I was talking to uh, a Northwestern history professor at a party recently. Uh, Northwestern University is, you know, obviously a very distinguished university that educates, you know, just a lot of children of the upper middle class uh, meritocracy. Um, and he was teaching a class on global poverty. Did I tell you this story? No, he asked no. the kids what their theories were about why people around the world, you know, were living on a dollar a day, two dollars a day. And one of their students, one of his students raised his hand and answered, you know, in a way that, you know, was in, you know, complete comportment with, I think, the world he grew up in. And he said, well, they weren't able to get into the good schools. (laughs) Uh, Wow. So, you know. That is um, very successful neoliberal messaging, but kind of a catastrophe. uh, 
you know, along the way, um, I quote uh, one of Lyndon Johnson's aides, uh, George Reedy, who described uh, the boss uh, as having an abnormal, superstitious respect for education. I believe he even thought it would cure chill blame. <laughs> and uh, what happened kind of since the 60s was what was considered uh, then sort of a superstitious respect for education has become a hegemonic respect. Right. Uh, and, and also LBJ had that superstitious respect because he grew up d- dirt poor. And it's telling to me that, what am I trying to say? That that honorable LBJ model of advancement through education does in the hands of what we now live in this vast knowledge economy with tremendous amounts of wealth inequality becomes the alibi for everything, which is to say, if you succeed and you get good grades and you prosper, you are... And the government kind of uh, supports education uh, in, you know, almost to the exclusion of all other sorts of social democratic values. Yes. We've taken care of business. We've done what needs to be done. So, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, what, what, what do we do with this? Well, you know, if, if liberals are going around basically saying, uh, you know, if uh, you didn't make it uh, in the world, um, you must have not been smart enough. Uh, you know, that's a uh, not only is that kind of like a Horatio Alger kind of mythology, it's even more damaging than the previous Horatio mythology that if you failed, it means you didn't work hard enough. Because, you know, working hard is at least a volitional thing. Right. You know, how intelligent you are uh, is in some sense it's you not... know, something you have no choice in. Every child will tell you that you can't judge someone's moral worth by how attractive they are. But somehow we've uh, come to a state of affairs where people's moral worth is readily judged by how smart they are. Yeah, and it's interesting to sort of fast forward to our apocalyptic uh, election cycle last year. That, right. Then we get to the right wing part of it, which yeah. makes uh, uh, all these millions of people who you know are basically insulted by the Democrats for their own lowly condition, uh, easy marks for reactionaries who tell them that, in fact, they're the smart ones and the liberals are the stupid Li- right. ones. Li- Libtards, as the, uh, the term of art goes on the right wing uh, social media sphere. We have, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Ann Coulter writing a book called If Democrats Had Any Brains, They'd Be Republicans. You know, we have Rush Limbaugh saying he performs uh, his show with half his brain uh, tied behind his back. And then we have the president of the United States saying he doesn't need intelligence briefings because he's a very smart person. Right, right. And on the other side, our, our side, um, I remember quite vividly the moment when uh, Donald Trump said something at one of his rallies to the effect of, I love the poorly educated, right? And the entire sort of democratic liberal establishment pounced, right? you know, as if to say, aha, here's proof positive that they're the dumb ones, you know? Right. And, and Donald Trump is feeding all of this, you know, raging ignorance on the right. Um yeah, you remember the story I tell in the, the piece about uh, Ronald Reagan and the debate in 1980? Yes, but tell our listeners. Well, I, I uh, have it on good authority from uh, Rick Hertzberg, the New Yorker writer and former Carter speechwriter, that they were absolutely convinced that all they needed to do to win the 1980 presidential election was get to this brilliant guy, Jimmy Carter, on stage next to this you know stupid right. guy, Ronald Reagan, who co-starred with a chimp uh, on a <laughs> debate stage. 
And, you know, they'd have it in the bag. And lo and behold, after much dilatory uh, avoidance, Ronald Reagan agreed to a debate a week before the election. And uh, at that point, uh, they were neck and neck in the polls. And then they had the debate. Reagan trounced Carter, who probably seemed like a pedantic ass. And no, no, uh, no Ronald question Reagan wins that. a landslide. Yep. Yeah, Reagan won that debate. And I would argue, you know, the the liberal reflex of dismissing the Trump phenomenon as, you know, a bunch of uh, idiocracy kind of yahoos plays right into the hands of the Trump movement. I think at bottom, you know, the, the smart politics that we're talking about here is turning into a class politics. And right. Meritocracy is is kind of the I, fallback ideology for that class formation, and uh, I am struck by how uncritically, you know, partisans on the left just sign off on the idea of meritocracy. Which, if you go back and and read, look at its history. Yeah, yeah Michael Young's satirical novel, The Rise of the Meritocracy, was written by a British socialist who explain how you know the, the mythology of educational achievement makes inequality worse and the whole book ends in a violent revolution <laughs> right somehow that moral didn't really cross the atlantic um, right and uh uh one of the one of the things i you know didn't stick in the piece but i've certainly thought deeply about it was a really wonderful article in the atlantic a year or two ago uh, about how uh, our modern day plutocrats uh, gather together at these, you know, conferences, the Aspen Ideas the Festival, Davos. you know, Davos, and basically um, rehearse to each other the narrative that they deserve to be where they are because uh, they're so smart. Right. Right. <laughs> and to bring another Trump figure in, for those of us on the sort of populist left, it's been more than a little deranging to see Steve Bannon talk about the Davos elite and how he's going to, you know, it was really criminal not to have brought um, investment bankers in for criminal prosecution after the 2008 meltdown, all this stuff. Um, and, and here we are back at your point about the right saying, you know, we're the smart ones. You've, You've been duped by this elitist, you know, credentialed democratic power. Right. Um, and, you know, back behind all this discussion uh, is an ontological problem, which is that um, what does it mean to be smart? Right. Uh, when when um, Charles Murray, you know, wrote the right. bell curve and claimed to be doing all this, uh, you know, social scientific statistical you know, fancy footwork, right. right, to prove that uh, you could use uh, a, a variable called G, which supposedly refers to general intelligence, uh, to show that certain groups uh, basically are bred to be smarter than certain other groups. Uh, of course, liberals reasonably enough pounced on him. Here's here, I'll read from the piece. Right. Perhaps for one of the myriad liberals who back in 2012 posted about a study by Gordon Hodson and Michael Busseri in an issue of the journal Psychological Science, Bright Minds and Dark Attitudes, Lower Cognitive Ability Predicts Greater Prejudice Through Right-Wing Ideology and Low Intergroup Contact. And I quoted the abstract. 
Right. Uh, despite their important implications for interpersonal behavior and relations, cognitive abilities have been largely ignored as explanations of prejudice. We proposed and tested mediation models in which lower cognitive ability predicts greater prejudice and affect media through the endorsement of right-wing ideologies, social conservatism, right-wing authoritarianism, and low levels of contact with our groups. An analysis of two large-scale nationally re representative United Kingdom data sets, N equals 15,874, we found that lower general intelligence, G, in childhood uh, predicts greater race racism in adulthood, and this effect was largely mediated via conservative ideology. So, you know, people are embracing this idea that there's this inherent general intelligence. Uh, and I, you know, I remember this. Do you remember people were, you know, quoting yeah, these? No, I, I totally do. Right? I, I actually reviewed this book by this guy, uh, Drew Weston, who, who is yeah. a good lefty liberal, but has this whole reductive, you know, neuroscientific theory of, of politics that liberals don't engage the amygdala, amygdala, or however smart people pronounce it. You know who really engaged the amygdala uh, really effectively? Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yes, true enough. And he, he, he stimulated people's fear centers constantly, but he did it in the service of making people terrified of what would happen if people in control of the financial resources began dominating their lives undemocratically. Yes, yes. Economic royalists. Right. Um, and this is what's so frustrating about the neoliberal merit meritocratic turn in democratic politics is, yes, FDR, LBJ, there's, you know, a good honorable tradition of naming the enemy on the left and mobilizing a majority. Um, and that's how politics works, right? But the yes. moment... I think our, uh, I think the stimulation of, of the liberal uh, masses' fear centers has worked pretty well on January 21st when we flushed out, you know, 3 million people around yeah. the world <laughs> for protests against Trump, right? To totally I think agree. fear was a motivator in that, you know? Oh, no, uh, I, I still feel it every day. But my point about, you know, the, the cognitive politics we're talking about here is that once you write off a significant part of the opposition is dumb, you are sparing yourself the work of political persuasion. You're, you know, right. you, why engage stupid people? Yeah. And what, what, what do you do once you, you've scientifically proved that conservatives right. are dumb? What yeah. do you do? You don't give them brain transplants? Yes, the, the red pill. Yeah, I talk about you know, so the ontology of this uh, in a, a case study, a Supreme Court decision, yes. Buck versus Bell. Yes. Uh, which uh, the most famous uh, quotation from it was uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. So to kind of like rewind on that one, uh, I think it was the ACLU uh, sued um, the attorney general of the state of Virginia for their involuntary uh, sterilization program. So a woman named Carrie Buck uh, was in a uh, state institution for uh, what were known then as scientific term imbeciles. Um, they sterilized her um, according to uh, a state law, which held that people who were uh, imbeciles would have imbecilic children. And in the words of the majority decision by one of the great uh, progressive intellectuals at the time, Oliver Wendell Holmes, we, we needed to prevent to be uh, being swamped with incompetence. Right. And he saw this as uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes did in his eight to one decision, which was also signed on to by another great uh, progressive intellectual who happened to be Jewish, Louis Brandeis. Um, he said that this was a humanitarian act because if you assured that imbeciles could not reproduce, 
then you can release them from these hospitals safely without fear of uh, them reproducing. Right. And uh, it turns out, and this was... Uh, this is the Paul Harvey rest of the story. Um, the rest of the story turns out to be, and this comes from uh, an essay from Stephen Jay Gould on the case, which apparently is going to be made into a um, movie, that uh, Carrie Buck was of uh, apparently average intelligence. Uh, that her daughter, uh, which was a very important part of the case, uh, was supposedly of imbecilic intelligence. But she, like me, uh, got a D in math in first grade. <laughs> uh, but it was on the honor roll of a second grade, right? Uh, so, um, and it turned out that this daughter uh, that was so important in the court case was a product of rape. And uh, that uh, Carrie Buck was uh, institutionalized, uh, not because she was an imbecile, but because her Parents and family were afraid of the shame of, shame of this right. illegitimate, right? That this uh, illegitimate child. Well, right. lo and behold, you know this 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 decision uh, licensed the golden age of eugenics, which was a great inspiration to Hitler. Yes, uh, as and know. also a distressingly um, you know popular cause among early twentieth century liberals and progressives. Um, right, and, and this is where I can sort of uh, veer into a little of, of my own intellectual or personal autobiography, which is, well, I spent the first nine years of my life on the grounds of a, of a mental hospital where my dad worked. It was a state mental hospital in Illinois. And, uh, you know, the sort of junior staff, which my dad was at the time, had uh, lodgings and actually what were former uh, lock houses that, that, housed German prisoners of war in Illinois, which is also something I didn't hmm. really know about until much later. But um, the point being, I grew up among, you know, people who in Carrie Buck's age were called imbeciles and they, you know, were out on the grounds. It was actually a very lovely Sylvan um, facility. Um, so I would wander around, especially in the summers and just, you know, play and, and talk to the inmates of, of this institution. And, you know, a couple of things were striking. One is um, they took me much more seriously than most other people I encountered in the, the adult world. They would have sort of, you know, direct conversations with me and take an actual interest in what I said, as opposed to saying, well, what did you learn to school in school today? Here's your dinner. <laughs> so, um, and it also, you know, I think gave me a, a sense early on in life that the, the human spectrum of, you know, types of people you're going to encounter is wide. You, you know, there, there will be people who may not always behave in a way that um, follows pre-accepted social scripts, but, you know, they're not dangerous. They're not, you know, they're not any worse than you. They're just a different kind of person. Um, and I think. And maybe in fact, quite decent. Indeed. I, I, I can hear you that you want to, um, pick up on a certain theme. So, <laughs> um, well, yeah, and, you know, you, with, yeah, continue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. The, the point regarding decency applies in, in uh, my case as well, because, uh, the other thing I, I realized after my family moved, um, was that every, the, the experience of, of, uh, having my formative years on the grounds of a mental hospital gave me an entirely misleading impression about uh, how friendly adults were. And, you know, when it, when we <laughs> moved up to Wisconsin, actually, your, your neck of the woods, I started, you know, naively, you know, would kind of try to strike up conversations with adults who I would, you know, 
randomly encounter in, in our apartment complex and they, you know, would freak out. <laughs> and then I, gradually, you know, I became acclimated and I realized, oh yeah, adults are mean. <laughs> I should just stay away from them, <laughs> which does yeah. go to this point of, of decency, uh, which is the central virtue that you counterpose to the idea of meritocratic achievement and, right. and smartness for smartness's sake. So tell, tell me um, right. about that. Yes. Uh, building upon, you know, the uh, what I take to be the moral argument of the great American novel, The Great Gatsby, yes. uh, I end up saying even as we moderns spend enormous amounts of energy making evaluations about who is sophisticated and who is simple, who is well-bred and who is eraviste and who is smart and who is dumb, these are entirely irrelevant to the only question that ends up mattering, who is decent and who is cruel. Now, curiously enough, just last night I flipped on the TV and one of Another great work of art uh, that works through these uh, these uh, themes with even uh, greater uh, kind of aggressive uh, uh, jackhammer intent uh, was on TV. Yeah. Uh, American Psycho. Oh yes. Do you remember that? Uh, of course. The breast. Freddie Sir Niles' uh, novel yeah, about yeah. Uh, yuppies that was made into a film, right? Patrick Bateman. And it's a great uh, movie, this actually. is a guy who spends enormous energy. Yeah, who figures out who is sophisticated and who is simple and who is well-bred and who is Arabese, who is smart and who is dumb, and uh, gets so mad at the people he judges at the, the lower end of that ledger, he he massacres them and, you know, uh, becomes a killer. Uh, not a very decent man, but very sophisticated and <laughs> probably very smart. Yeah. I believe when uh, the novel was first um, released that several reviewers speculated that Donald Trump was a model for Patrick Bateman which is easy to see, right? I thought of Donald Trump constantly yeah. when I was watching that movie because he's sort of like, you know, like the, the, the indecency of the American character, you know, uh, scorekeeping, yeah. uh, uh, sex, yeah. and uh, domination, violent Just, domination. Yeah, pure self-assertion and uh, avoid. Pure, it's the American id, right? Yeah. In order to kind of undergird that, that claim that he's, He's fit to rule, right. you know. Ubermensch. He has to also maintain right. that he's smart, right? Yeah. Uh, even if he's dumb, right? As 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 does uh, Tom Buchanan. But you know that quote uh, that I just said, um, I, I've 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 just really been delighted to see that it really has resonated with people. People yeah. been reading this piece and saying, "Wow, you know, I've been thinking this, but I haven't been able to express it." Yeah, which, which... is an amazing. Delight for a writer. No, that is exactly what you want to hear. And no, I, as I, I've told you, this is certainly among my favorite ever baffler pieces, both because it does truly baffle. <laughs> you know, it, it sort of takes what every, you know, what is probably the single most taken for granted personal virtue, you know, in at least the elite um, consensus sphere and, and, shows you it's dark underbelly. Um, and also, you know, I think now of all times is the moment to articulate a politics of decency. Um, and and you sort of extrude it from the great Gatsby. And right. what are the concrete lessons, especially having come out of the debacle, you know, I would argue that the Hillary campaign was kind of the limit test of the merit right. meritocratic model of political right. rule, how right. do we go forward? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of um, well, it's kind of paradoxical because you know Hillary Clinton, you know, thought she was um, pursuing a politics of decency, 
you know, these TV commercials showing, you know, Donald Trump being an asshole, right. basically, <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, there was really kind of, there was no ground to it, right? It's right. like people thought, well, uh, I think a lot of people saw those commercials and said, you know, yeah, he's an asshole, but at least he's our asshole, right? right? <laughs> uh, Hillary Clinton just wasn't seen as, you know, kind of in the classic, you know, kind of populist formulation, one of us. And right. reason she wasn't seen as one of us in a lot of ways was that she was uh, perceived fairly or unfairly as an avatar of this, you know, this culture of professional liberal snobbery. Right. Well, uh, she you know, was, I mean, she did embrace, you know, the idea it was hammered away at over and over again that she was the most qualified candidate for the president. See, and which, you know, is no small thing. Another thing that's necessary is something that I think she really, to her credit, you know, tried to do, which was, you know, uh, establish herself as uh, a champion of, you know, in Franklin Roosevelt's term, the forgotten man or right. the forgotten woman, which was an explicit message of right. Donald Trump. But because of her history uh, and because of, you know, kind of unfair depredations of her from the, the right and even the left, sure. uh, it just could not sell it credibly. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, what struck me was how wrongheaded, in my view, the Hillary campaign's response to the Donald Trump slogan, Make America Great Again, was America is already great, which is a way of saying you're too dumb to know how good you had it if you're right, disenchanted yeah. or upset. But I do think, you know, this to my mind is is one of the hugest challenges ahead, you know, for picking up the pieces from this debacle right. is, you know, how do you put it, you know. Yeah, I think I think it, 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 you know, it really requires a politics among the Democrats that talks about um, the experience of dignity and democracy you know, in the workplace where we yeah. spend most of our lives, which is something that Democrats have you know, almost completely abandoned. You know, a big you know, role model for me in thinking about these issues is the great social critic and labor lawyer, Tom Gagan, yes. who has been Good saying for decades that in order for the Democrats to thrive, they need to make a high school degree worth okay. something. And by that, he means basically not we need to make you know, high school student curricula, you know, kind of a more, uh, you know, academically uh, uh, abstruse, right? But that uh, we need to have a place for people of all sorts of gifts and dispositions, right? Exactly. So he, 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 thinks, he thinks about um, the, the, the way the, the, the labor system works in Germany in which there's an enormous role for hiring people who have uh, what we would consider in America merely vocational education. And because they don't consider labor people, you know, sort of factors of production that are infinitely flexible and replaceable, uh, um, you know, which is basically uh, uh, some part of the, the, the liberalism part of America. Yeah, all these... Um, you know, uh, Obama aides who have, you know, kind of gone to work for Uber Jeez, and yeah. gone to work for, um, you know, uh, Airbnb, uh, they basically say once someone gets a job, an affirmative goal in social policy should be to keep a person in that position as long as possible, which is precisely uh, opposite the idea of labor flexibility right. by keeping on training them. Whereas in America, you know, education, it's almost, it's a funny thing. It's, it's like, you know, like uh, economics has this concept of a negative externality, right. which is basically anything that isn't uh, reflected in uh, price. price mechanism, uh, right. Right, price mechanism. So in America, when it comes to uh, 
hiring and firing, a negative externality is education. You know, basically, uh, companies don't have to pay for it, yep. right? Uh, and and you know, with their tax evasion, they you know uh, you know evade the basic they, they, you know right, social contract pay for education. Uh, they get these people who um, are either very well educated or if they're not educated, are considered basically people that you can you can you know, just kind of slot in and out of these jobs that are radically disskilled, right? right. Uh, even teachers, you know, so right. basically this this kind of hamburger flipper model in which you make the job uh, as a dumbed down as possible, which, you know, right. my so wife works as a researcher in an investment bank and they make they make the stuff as turnkey as possible, you know? Uh, instead of saying that uh, it is the affirmative duty of employers to uh, pay for uh, this thing, this gift they get of uh, of of the commitment of human beings to uh, work, you know, under the control of a corporation. Right, and on on the other side, the sort of education as panacea vision of the neoliberals. Um, there's the downgrading of the experience of education in, into the idea of human capital or social capital. Um, which again is what you're describing. It's a movable integer across the chessboard. You can, you know, just plug in the right kind of STEM credits, and out will come a you know computer engineer. Um, right. I mean, I don't think that the idea of human capital is a, a terrible idea. It, I object to the language. I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, let's say you know, uh, you know, if you just uh, yes, it's, it's it's well, why don't you just call it a way of thinking about people as um, Precious and not expendable, right? right? It's just a way of talking about value. Right. People are valuable, you know, and uh, uh, and that you know they don't suddenly uh, lose their preciousness and value just because they take a job, uh, and you know, like they, you know, they shouldn't be fired at will. Right. I mean, you know, it's, have the Democrats ever, you know, thought about, you know, uh, reforming our labor laws so that you have to uh, fire someone for cause? Yeah. Um, perhaps long ago. Long I still, ago. I think yeah. Senator Wagner, the, the, the right. architect of the Wagner Act, uh, actually uh, would argue about um, workplace democracy in terms of the 15th Amendment outlawing slavery. He said, if you right. basically have no say over your conditions of employment, you are effectively a slave. Yeah. Um, now, we definitely don't have that sensibility in today's democratic party <laughs> and it's um it's going to be a real interesting challenge uh, ahead to see how democrats or you know the left more broadly um can advance because you know it's not just that you know donald trump represents um all of these obvious affronts to to basic decency um but it's that we need something as compelling at the level of lived experience as you're saying on the left that was able to galvanize you know whatever segment of the white working class to the trump campaign and a lot of uh, i'm convinced that's real instead of uh, fictional right exactly real real populism um not the steve bannon variety yeah um and, you know, I, I do think a lot of that does go back to the experience of work, to the experience of indebtedness, the experience of, you know, right. complete 
socioeconomic uncertainty and anxiety. Um, but right. in order to assuage all that, you can't have a program that is, you know, like get a higher degree and, a, you know, a job at an investment bank or Silicon Valley. <laughs> that yeah. is... Dead end. Yeah. I do know that Hillary obviously had a, a far better jobs program than Trump. But there's right. and, 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 and Barack Obama made supporting manufacturing and actually sort of uh, 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 enriching kind of training and human capital within manufacturing as a big goal of his presidency. Yeah, and, in and addition to rescuing the auto industry and right. union jobs attached to it. So, so, you know, this is not a long, this is not a short term project. You know, it's like they got to keep on plugging and plugging and plugging and create a message around it. Right. And maybe people actually get the, get the point and get smart as it were yeah i i think on that note we can call it a podcast i really appreciate you taking the time rick perlstein gentleman scholar genuinely smart fellow maybe even a little decent always (laughs) (laughs) cheers brother yep take care